0: So, today we're talking about the power of positioning, and my guest is the man, David C. Baker. Um, for anyone who is listening and watching and uh, may not know everything that David's done in his career, he's an author, speaker, advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books, advised over 900 firms, and keynoted conferences in 30 countries. His work's been covered in dozens of international publications, and his latest work, which is a book that I absolutely loved, is called The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight to Impact and Wealth, and you can check that out at expertise.is. David, thank you so much for joining me on Thrive today.
1: Sure. It's really good to be here. It's, uh, I had to move a couple of these because of a crazy travel schedule, so I'm glad it worked out. I've been looking forward to chatting with you and your audience.
0: Absolutely. So today we're talking all about, um, I think, our mutual favorite topic, which is determining market position. And for all of the creative agency owners listening, why is it so imperative that we niche down and stop being all things to all people?
1: I think it's important now. I don't think it was all that important in the past, but the world has changed around us radically and quickly. And while you know, I guess we could just say the world has been Googleized, right? So now <laughs> we have access to. All the prospects out there that we want or at least a much larger universe but our competitors have access to the people that we used to work with and we were protected geographically and we're not the the world's expectation around information and expertise is so specific you could be lying in bed dreaming about one very specific thing and for a minute you might think oh this is such an esoteric question I have How in the world would I find somebody that knows exactly what I need and could give me the information free and could give me the information immediately? And then you realize, oh, there's this thing called YouTube or Google or whatever. And so that's why, because nobody wants to pay for – the wise person anymore they want to pay for deep expertise and they're comfortable assembling this litany of experts and picking and choosing and then coming up with a plan on their own so unless we're niched that way we're just not going to be have a very compelling answer in the marketplace
0: so you probably love the term full service digital agency as much as i do yeah right <laughs>
1: Yeah, full service simply means, hey, I am, um, you know, I'm desperate and give me a chance. I I wrote an article one time for Communication Arts years ago, and I was in kind of a punchy mood, <laughs> and I I knew the editor pretty well, and so I added two paragraphs onto the article, and I knew she would recognize it as a joke and and ax them, and we'd have a good laugh over it. But she didn't. She actually thought that that was a part of the article. Oh, and what God. I said in the article at the end was like. Um, expert or, uh, prostitutes are better at running their businesses than (laughs) creatives because, uh, the only people who, when they say full service, mean it are really prostitutes and the rest of the people just mean, give me a chance. Like I'll do it. I'll figure it out. So yeah, I don't like that term at all.
0: Well, I was looking forward to a lively conversation. You've already not disappointed in the first three minutes. (laughs) Right, right. So, so let's talk about this for a second. In, in terms of um, translating positioning to all the touch points where we might interact with our prospects, you say, craft your positioning entirely on your strategy and not your execution. Don't even feature it on your, on your website because it's interchangeable. You know, this is like a huge, huge pain point in, in the creative world. Everybody has this Chinese menu of services on their website. What's going on?
1: Maybe it's because that's where all their training comes from, right? Mm. Very, very few of them had any classes on strategy or research and insights or account planning. Almost all of their work was related to a particular craft, which we now see as largely implementation. And to move upstream, we have to attach that implementation to strategy. Otherwise, we're so far downstream and somebody else has made all those decisions and we're simply there with a compressed time frame and not much budget left to be the, the hands people rather than the mind people. And so I think it's really tough. At Like if you think about somebody who is a fantastic coder uh, or an app developer or something like that, you know, they they need specific requirements and instructions and guidelines but they but they can be really really good regardless of what the strategy of the project is and mm-hmm. that's what i mean by it being really interchangeable and so i i believe that that implementation is something that most clients want and value but they're not going to pay a premium for it That's unless right. it's attached to a really tight positioning.
0: Yeah, and, and the other thing that I think of when, when I look at these websites that have the, the Chinese menu drop down, um, it's almost like you know having the client self-prescribe their own solution and then simply search out a commodity to get mm-hmm. it done. You know?
1: Right, right, which would be called malpractice in a professional <laughs> service That's setting. That's right where you you don't go to a doctor anymore. You go to the pharmacy and say, hey, I know what's wrong with me just this is what i need do it and that's self prescribing and it's it's unethical it's immoral but but we allow our clients to do that sometimes because we're so de- well we don't feel like we can push back we we view these client relationships as sometimes a little bit fragile and have to be handled carefully and if we push back too much they'll go to somebody else we we're left with this powerless positioning that doesn't allow us to have the sort of impact and to make the sort of money that we could.
0: Right. Well, actually, that brings me, that's a great segue to one of the other things I wanted to talk about, which is um, one of my favorite credos in the book is um, for agency leaders to drop the irrational fear that to keep a client, you have to meet all of their needs. Right. And I'm thinking about, you know, does it, do you think that that irrational fear stems from insecurity alone? And how can they mass like move past that if that's the case?
1: Mm. I think it probably is insecurity. I'm not absolutely sure. I know that would be the case for me. I'm thinking back to my dating life. Actually, I've been married 38 years, and I remember how oh, I was just self-destructively, um, I guess, nervous and defensive, and and not. I was I was wasn't a good boyfriend at all. I was um, jealous, and it was. And and that's where this idea came to me. Like you know, you you shouldn't be afraid to let let your 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 girlfriend, in my case, dance with somebody else at the party. It's like, what kind of lame mindset does it take to not let that happen? And somehow that creeps into how we work In firms and and that it creates this expanded survey this Chinese menu that you're talking about because we don't want our clients going somewhere else So we manufacture our ability to do something because we're afraid they're going to fall in love with somebody else And so yes, I think the way you phrase it is exactly right. It's this this settled sense inside us that we, we're we not really sure that we're that irreplaceable. And mm-hmm. so we don't dare let our clients experiment with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just saw a client recently that went through something similar, and their way of dealing with it was to make sure that they had some type of say in – placing a new marketing director at the client, uh, Mm. you know, the client's place. And what ended up happening was they got passed over for a much larger development project, which was not in their wheelhouse at all. And now they're very nervous that, of course, you know, the fox is in the hen house. Right. Yeah. 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 so let's go let's go into something else. In the book, you talk about, um, you know, obviously this whole thing about expertise, the ultimate control that stems from withholding the expertise, but that it's only meaningful if your agency is actually difficult to replace. So what are your thoughts on ad agencies that have to pitch big brands with creative concepts or campaigns?
1: Where they're doing that for free before yeah. they're engaged? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah yeah that in some cases i think they just feel like it never occurs to them that they have an option they they've just come to believe that this is how the game is played and so they're they respond to the cattle call and they show up and they do their thing and then they beg to be chosen and it's a it's a really lame it's it's sort of like somebody who's not good at sports hoping to get chosen for the softball team or something it's just it's it's uh, dehumanizing and the reason that these clients can do this to agencies is because they can, right? Blair Enns talks about that all the time. They do is because they can, and we let them continue getting away with it. He's also done some interesting research that says that your chances of landing those accounts in a cattle call setting are directly related to the degree to which you disrupt the process so if you follow all the rules you are very unlikely to win that work so oh, that's I interesting. think yeah so you so you have to say like oh, okay you have to spend extra time with me or you have to tell me he else is pitching or you need to give me an, another week or whatever it is if you don't disrupt the process your your chances are almost they are not they make it not even worth participating so the reason we the reason these agencies do it is because they are largely interchangeable, and they also, and it's much more difficult for them to make changes to that. They may even recognise intellectually that they have a problem with positioning, but very few of them have the the power to make those changes at the institutional level because they're often a part of a holding company or whatever, they also misunderstand positioning because those agencies, their primary value to their clients is the fact that they are large enough to have a deep enough bench to be entrusted with a large large project. Smaller firms, the ones that you and I typically work with, don't have that luxury and so positioning for them is even more important and they can't lean on that but most, the truth is most agencies are not positioned well, and right. most agencies are doing, I guess, average from a financial standpoint. Those aren't the people I work with. Mm-hmm. I work the people with people who, and you do too, I'm sure, who want to be exceptional. They want to have a little bit more power in the marketplace, not to beat clients over the head, but to make more money so that they stay interested in this silly business and so <laughs> that they do better work for their clients and can sleep at night.
0: Yeah. Do you think everything at the at the end of the day, if we really were to boil everything down, do you think it all comes down to positioning?
1: I do. Absolutely. I do. do. Because without positioning, you don't know who your prospects are. You don't know where to find them. You don't know what to say to them when you find them and on and on. You don't know what they want to buy from you. You don't even know who to hire to fulfill the promises you've made. So I do think it all comes down to positioning.
0: Yeah. Everyone wants to jump on profitability, but I think you can't even go there until you really get positioning nailed down.
1: Absolutely true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um so let's uh talk a little bit about the uh, concept that's quite hard for agency owners to wrap their head around um, and i'm glad you touched upon it in the book. as opportunities increase, agencies should be underbuilding their capacity and having more no conversations. Why mm-hmm. do these people fight this tendency so much?
1: I think it comes from this cultural infusion we have. We have this genetic predisposition to say yes to growth. We feel like being a, a stable agency that is not adding or detracting from body count, is making lots of money year over year, that's just not enough. It it, it requires to really be successful in our world. You have to be growing. You have to apply for the silly Inc. 5000 awards <laughs> or something. That's and, – and we – if you if you think back on it step back from our industry and you think about this world that we live in here in in North America anyway it's called the land of opportunity right. so if we say no to opportunity it almost becomes unpatriotic which is really silly and so every time opportunity comes along we say yes to opportunity which means that we build out our capacity and in the process we're creating this larger and larger machine that we have to feed and if we don't keep this delta, this difference between our opportunity and our capacity, then we just simply don't ever have the opportunity to say no. And I'm convinced that most bad business decisions come from financial panic. And so we, like around our positioning, around people, what we're gonna do with a client, whatever that is. And so I want to make sure that there's a difference between those two, opportunity and capacity, so that People will have the comfort to say no. Now, most of the time that means you just say no to opportunity. Sometimes it means you have to dismiss staff because you don't have enough opportunity for the people that you have. That's the painful side of it.
0: Yeah, and when you say underbuilt capacity, I'm assuming you mean you have a, a core team that's full-time employees, but then you can rely on a, an elastic team of contractors and things like right. that yeah
1: yeah exactly and those contractors should be more the skill people not the folks managing projects and accounts and doing strategy uh, and if you work it that way then it work. it works beautifully and there's there are so many fantastic contractors out there these days better than a better pool than there ever has been so it's it's quite feasible
0: yeah so contract out your execution and your implementation stuff keep all the client relationships and everything else in house grow mm-hmm. that um, at, at what point though so yes, you're underbuilding the capacity having more no conversations, but let's say you have a couple of ideal opportunities. These are perfect opportunities for your niche, your your fit, your core expertise. At what point does an agency owner say, "Okay, now we actually do have to Increase capacity? How, how do you measure that, or how do you have that conversation with your clients?
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic question, and I can answer it for you, but it, we actually switch into another chapter here, because if, like you said, it's a perfect opportunity, There's we've looked at it carefully, objectively, there's no problems with it, then we have to ask ourselves, as agency principals, a different question, and that's this. Do I want to step further away from the work and closer to managing people? If I answer that in the affirmative, then growth makes really good sense. But if somebody isn't willing as they grow to step towards people and away from doing, then it's a mistake to grow. So I think uh, to me, growth is not bad or good. It's very neutral. It's about what you personally want to do. So I think it's fine. It's actually a really good idea to grow if you're answering all those questions right.
0: Right. But it's about putting that checklist in place and really doing some soul searching to see what you want.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, how is there any connection between firms that are thriving and their creativity or their intelligence? There's very little. It's the connection is between thriving and the quality of their business decisions around positioning, around people, around services, all those things. And so that's That's the work that you and I and other people do. It's we try to help them think through those business decisions that they're making.
0: Right, right. Well, for everyone listening, if you have not ordered a copy of The Business of Expertise, go over to expertise.is. David's got a ton of other resources on that site as well, and I will obviously post everything in the show notes. David, thank you so much for your time. This was really, really fun.
1: Oh, Kelly, it was great. Really enjoyed chatting with you, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Workamajig, the number one creative agency management software. Show notes at thrive.workamajig.com. Find out how your creative agency can become more productive and more profitable. Schedule your demo at thrive.workamajig.com.